This morning, uh, we're starting a series in the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned at the very beginning. And so, verses 1 through 16, maybe even 17, are the introduction. We stopped at 12 this morning. Uh, We'll come back to the same passage next week and dive into the Beatitudes, which is what we just read. But what I want to do this morning is I want to frame out the Sermon on the Mount for us. What I mean by that is I want us to understand how I'm hoping and calling us to lean into the Sermon on the Mount over the next weeks together. I'm going to ask three questions this morning of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to ask, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, how should we read it? And the third one is, I'm going to ask and try to answer, well, why are we, as New City, teaching the Sermon on the Mount right now? And those are the three things that I want to talk about this morning in the introduction to the sermon. Uh, But first, uh, in order to get there, I want to tell you about a movie I saw recently uh, that depicts a very famous story by now. Uh, It's Clint Eastwood's version of the famous now U.S. Airways flight uh, with Captain Solenberger as the pilot. And that is the flight on January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 takes off from LaGuardia in New York City, as most of you know by now, and impacts two minutes into the flight an entire flock of Canadian geese. Now, airports go through all types of interesting ways in order to keep birds away from landing and planes, landing and taking off. But sometimes it does happen, and one bird strike can be enough to send a plane back to land to make sure everything's okay. But an entire flock, it can be catastrophic. And in this sense, it was catastrophic. Uh, Immediately, both engines were lost. And in the movie, it's fascinating, the recreation, if you've seen it, of what was happening in the cockpit. I mean, you feel everything. The, the, The graphics are amazing. You really feel like you're flying over Manhattan. And you can see... Uh, everything. You can see the Hudson River. You can see the city. You can see the Bronx. You can see Jersey. You can see it all. And the, the sound of the engines failing. And the, the calmness, but yet interested look on Captain Solenberger's face. And as we know, uh, it's, it's called now uh, the miracle on the Hudson. Well, Captain Solenberger was very clear that he did not think he was a hero or necessarily think that it was a miracle in the way that most people thought. You see, when you watch the movie, which is based on the book, uh, and so I'm assuming relatively uh, accurate, you see that immediately as he's trying to figure out what happens, he does tell the co-pilot, see how far the next two closest airports are. Take out this checklist. And as the co-pilot's doing that work, He's scanning the horizon. He's looking at the instruments. He's thinking. He's feeling what's happening with his whole person. And he's then given uh, directions from those on the ground to land at a certain airport. And he realizes that's impossible. So he then makes the amazing decision, as we know, to land the plane on the Hudson River. Now, by this point, he had already shut down both engines. He'd already prepared the entire plane for a water landing. And he had to navigate and maneuver the plane while he was drifting in such a way where he was not going against the water flow, but with it. And all of this happened in a moment of 
mere minutes. Now, when they did the trial, trying to, in fact, prove that there was some pilot error and he didn't have to land on the water, they pull the information from the plane and tell him, we've done you know, dozens of simulations, and in every one, you could have landed at either airport. You did not have to land on the Hudson. And he said, that's ridiculous. And so then they show the screen in front of all of the jury and him and his co-pilot of simulation after simulation, these pilots and simulators landing the plane safely at these airports. And then he simply asks the question, is it not true that they not only knew what was going to happen, exactly when it was going to happen, but they also had the checklist to go with that as soon as it happened? And they said, yes. And he said, that's not quite the same thing, is it? And so then they agreed, and in the trial, they added 35 seconds to those who were in the simulator live doing this. And when they added the 35 seconds that they listened to silence on the radio as he was thinking and scanning the horizon, taking stock of what was happening, when they added for that 35 seconds, even though they had a list of exactly what to do and they knew exactly when the birds were going to hit every time they crashed in a highly populated area, every time. Now, what exactly am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is what Captain Solenberger was trying to tell us all, is that it was less of a miracle and more of the power of right habit. You see, over decades and decades of flying, over thousands of hours of training and in the cockpit, decades of going through checklists and understanding how to fly, although he had never practiced for this moment, he was prepared. He was the right kind of person when this moment happened. He never practiced that exact moment, which is why even the people with the list, it didn't matter. You see, what I'm arguing in the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount is more like Captain Solenberger than it is the pilots in the flight simulator. In other words, we in the Sermon on the Mount are not given a mere list of rules that tell us what to do, but we are invited into a lifelong journey of becoming a certain type of person so that we are prepared to act virtuously when it matters. You see, the call to the Sermon on the Mount is not a call to conform to rules, but it's actually to be transformed from the inside out into a certain type of person. We are called to increasingly embody the virtues of the kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is for. And so we understand that more when we understand what the Sermon on the Mount is. And so I'm going to answer that question. What is the Sermon on the Mount? And this is a question of genre, really, is what it is. Because genre helps us understand what the author is trying to do. And when we look at the context, we also need to understand what type of stories and what type of worldview are in play when the author is writing what he's writing. Now, uh, I'm very helped by a couple of commentaries that have helped me sort of reformulate my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. I'll tell you in the last point that I've been planning us being in the Sermon on the Mount for a year now. 
I've been planning, I've been leading us to this point, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But even though I had an inclination of everything I'm about to say, I was so helped by a couple of commentaries that helped me piece all of this together. And so everything I'm about to say is very much infused with what I've been learning over the past weeks. There are two main contexts that are happening when Jesus walks onto that mountain and opens his mouth and teaches. The two main contexts, first, is Second Temple Judaism wisdom literature. Don't be scared. Okay, I'll tell you what that is. And the second one is the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. These are two realities that seem far off and sort of abstract to us, but they were actually part of the warp and woof of what was happening with these people who were hearing the sermon and in Jesus as he's growing up. So I want to quickly tell you first, what is the Second Temple Judaism wisdom literature? What's that all about? Well, first of all, all I really need to tell you for this morning is that Second Temple Judaism is a description of the type of Judaism that existed when Jesus was alive. Okay, so that's what you need to know. It's referred to that time period as Second Temple Judaism. Now, there were rabbis who were writing uh, literature during this time, scholars, so to speak, who were reflecting on what we would call the Old Testament scriptures and seeking to form God's people in light of what was happening in the culture around them. And this literature was designed for wisdom. And wisdom, we could say, is skill in the art of godly living, right? Wisdom doesn't have a list. And even principles are okay, but wisdom is about embodiment of a life. And so therefore, it's skill in the art of godly living. And so as they're writing this, they're trying to figure out, well, how do we know what type of people to become? How should we disciple and equip these people? So what they begin to do is look in the scriptures for what's called the apocalyptic vision or the vision of the virtues of the kingdom. What will things be like when the kingdom of God comes fully? What will God's people look like? Okay, so we know some of those things. Now let's take those virtues and let's seek to practice them so we become those types of people now. And that was what some of these authors were getting at in this time period, these Jewish wisdom literature writers seeking to produce a certain type of people based on kingdom values. Now, the question that they're answering is the question, the same question, that the Greco-Roman virtue tradition was asking. And this was the question, what is human flourishing? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live a happy life? What is the good life? Now, I can tell you right now the way that our culture answers that. In our culture, the good life is mainly consumerism. That's mainly what it is. Every commercial, every advertisement is promising you that you will live the good life when you consume enough stuff. Now, whether or not you think that you are a consumeristic, right? It's not wrong to consume. We all need to consume. But the point is hyperconsumption or consumerism or materialism, sometimes we call it. But at the baseline, what it is saying is that if you want to be happy, you have to buy the right things. You have to wear the right things. You have to look the right way. That's what will complete you. When you're not happy, go to the mall and shop. Buy a new car. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to the mall and shopping. There's nothing wrong with buying a new car. But when you believe in the gospel of consumerism, you don't just buy things, things buy you. You don't just do things, things do things to you, which we'll see throughout the entire sermon. And so, however, 
the Greco-Roman philosophers were much more, what I would say, virtuous even than we are. You see, all philosophy in this day was mainly moral philosophy. Right? We tend to think that philosophy with Aristotle, Plato, uh, these, these virtue ethic philosophers, that it's really abstract. And sometimes it is. But what they're really asking is, what is the good life? How do we live it? What is a human being designed to live for? And that's what they were trying to answer. So you see, there is a serious integration here between these two questions. The Greco-Roman tradition, which, by the way, Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of Jesus' time, was very Hellenized. After all, the New Testament was written in Greek. So you see, there's this there's overlapping reality. And Jesus, in Matthew, is pictured more than this, but not less than the sage who teaches us what the good life is. The sage who presents to us what the worthy life is. It's important to know, as we go throughout the series, that the philosophers taught that the truly ethical life or the good life is not defined by your actions. That's, that tends to be what we think, right? A virtuous person does the right action. But actually, that's very what we might call pharisaical or merely external and this is why, because true ethics, and we'll see the ethics of the kingdom, are about who we are as people and who we are becoming. Here's an example. If you think of an archer, right? I have no idea. I've, I've shot an arrow twice in my life, and I missed the target both times. But it is conceivable that although I am not skilled, I might actually hit the bullseye. Let's not even go that extreme. Let's just say darts, Right? I'm not a skilled, is it dartsman? I haven't even thought of that. Dart, darts person? I'm not skilled at throwing darts at circles. But some people are. But it's conceivable that I could hit the bullseye. But that doesn't make me a skilled dartsman. Does it? Right? In the same way, a skilled person at darts might sometimes miss the mark. But that doesn't mean that they're not skilled. And so you see, the point is that we cannot fake virtue. It takes our whole person. It takes practice in the same direction. Now, when I studied philosophy in my undergrad, one of my favorite philosophers to read, hands down, was Aristotle. And he's very helpful in writing uh, on virtue. And he develops the idea that you can't do good by accident or intuition, that that's not truly virtue. But actually, virtue entails and necessitates an intentional pursuit of wholeness. In other words, integrity. Your internal being has to match up with your actions. That is the virtuous person. And insofar as you're moving that way, a virtuous action is one that includes all of who you are. Reasoning, affections, actions, your whole person. Now, why did I go into all of this? The reason is, is, this is the point. These two realities overlap and are interconnected in the Sermon on the Mount. And we cannot understand rightly and fully the Sermon on the Mount unless we understand that those were the questions people were asking, even his disciples that he's speaking to, when he opens his mouth to speak. So we can't just project our, whatever our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount is. We have to cooperate with the text. We want to seek to be a good reader of what Matthew is trying to say. Both contexts 
The Jews, the Second Temple Judaism, and the Greco-Roman context are addressing the great topic of wholeness and human flourishing. And I would ask you, do you want to be whole? I mean, what would it be like to walk into a room and not be scared of what people think about you? What would it be like to approach God as a Christian, even when we fail, and not shrink in fear, but to repent, fall into the love, love, loving arms of the Father, and then still pursue holiness? What would it be like to love the things that you ought to love? Well, that's wholeness. In the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to the great question of human flourishing. Namely, Jesus is telling us what is the good life. What does it mean to be human and whole? And so to answer my original question, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It is a Christ-centered kingdom virtue ethic. And the kingdom virtue ethic isn't about following the list. We don't walk into a room, flip out the list, and say, okay, what do we do here? Right? Or we fail, exactly like Captain Solenberger would have failed if he would have relied only on the list because there wasn't a list for that situation. But he put all of his experiences and training and formation together in that moment. And as God's people, that's the type of transformation we need, deep from the inside out. Now, if that's what it is, how should we read it? How do you read the Sermon on the Mount? This is my guess. This is my guess. And I've been talking to some of you about this. If you're like most people, you are terrified of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll tell you why. It's because most of the time in Protestant circles, which if you don't know what that is, that's this. Many of us have been taught that Christians should read the sermon as what's been called by some the impossible ideal view. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount said, in this view says that the standard that Jesus sets is so high that it, it must cast us back on grace. And the whole point of the sermon is to tell us how horrible we are and how much we need Jesus. Okay, that's not how we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, that doesn't give us a very positive view of the Sermon on the Mount either, does it? And because I think that's implicitly or explicitly what we've picked up or what we've been taught... It's led us to either neglect the sermon outright, even though it is Jesus's, right? We're Christians. It's Jesus's most famous sermon. So we've either neglected it because of that understanding. We've just ignored it, or at least we've been confused about what it means, right? And I'm under no illusion that I'm going to clear all that up for you, even in the next, you know, however many weeks we're together. But my hope is that we'll clear some of it up. My hope is that we will learn and grow and be shaped and formed together by the Sermon on the Mount as we walk forward. And I think that will happen as we read it in a more helpful and complete way. And uh, I think that's sort of in line uh, with the way John Calvin teaches us how to read it. And he helps us see that the sermon itself was Jesus rescuing the law from the Pharisees because the Pharisees had turned it into mere external acts. So Jesus wants to rescue the law from the Pharisees who emphasized its external acts instead of its heart. You see, what we'll see is that in this wisdom sermon, Jesus is really comparing and contrasting two ways, but it's not 
the way of the righteous and the way of the world. It's the way of the righteous kingdom life and the way of the hypocritical, pharisaical life. That's what he's comparing and contrasting. Obedience from the heart or mere external obedience. That's what he's contrasting. And he'll show us that external acts are selfish and they're based on fear and on pride. And this is why mere external acts, the whole point of just conforming to the law merely is so that you have leverage, either looking good in the eyes of others, which we'll see, those of you who pray with lots and lots of words so that you look good in front of other people, you're not really praying to God, you're praying to other people, that's an example. So we want to have leverage with other people to look a certain way, or we want to have leverage with God because we think we can actually earn something from him. When our sermons or our thoughts or our prayers are somehow a performance. But we'll see throughout the weeks that that is so shallow. That's so shallow. In a little preview, that's one of the reasons why we just went through the Ten Commandments before we got here. I'll tell you more about that in a second. But gospel virtue is sweeter than this because when we read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, we'll see that Jesus does not say this. He does not say this. Try to live like this, and then God will be your Father and bless you. When we read it carefully, we'll see that is not at all what he's saying. But many of us read the Beatitudes like next week, and we think what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who fill in the blank. We think that he's saying, if you do this, then God will bless you. That's not at all what the Beatitudes are saying. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is saying. You see, all the way through, Jesus is saying, you can live like this. You can, if you already know that God is your Father. Many of us sell ourselves so short. We don't realize that the Holy Spirit of God, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us and is transforming us and has given us the means and the direction to change. Here's just one example. Just in case you're like, really? Here's one example. Verse 16, right? It's not in your worship folder. I'll read it for you. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So now you're thinking, oh, that's right. I need to be good because I'm a Christian and God wants me to be good in front of other people. Let's keep reading. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see that? He's assuming that you understand God is your Father and that your good works are a response to that. And here's the other thing is that how are you actually going to freely love people with an attitude of love towards those who disagree with you? How is that possible if you're trying to earn righteousness? You will be self-righteous. You will be dying to show your righteousness so that you can feel good about yourself to Christians and non-Christians. Those aren't good works. That's you trying to build your own kingdom. So how are you actually going to live freely with good works? Well, you're going to realize that God is your Father and you don't need to earn anything. And that's what Jesus is assuming of us. So we cannot rightly approach the sermon unless we understand first that we are loved and valuable as God's children. And that the sermon that Jesus assumes that those who actually will want to accept his invitation already have put their trust in God the Father. Otherwise, You'll read the Sermon on the Mount. This is how you know if, how much we understand the gospel. 
is when we read the Sermon on the Mount, if we see it as something attractive or something that turns us off. If we see it as attractive, that's God's work in our life. If it turns us off, that shows us that we don't understand the gospel. So, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' invitation to flourishing. Now, I think that uh, for a lot of us, one of the reasons why this whole dynamic is confusing is because we have a hard time working out the relationship between grace and effort. We sort of think like if unconditional love in God's grace for us makes us a child of God, then how does effort play into this? I mean, because isn't virtue hard work? Doesn't it take practice? And the answer is yes. It's very hard work. So again, I will keep saying that as Dallas Willard says so succinctly, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. You see, earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. And when we respond, we put in effort. You know that that's true, right? If you, if you get the promotion, you've already had it, you don't just sit on your bottom and not do anything, right? Why do you hire a trainer? Because you know to get fit or healthier, you need to work hard. You need to get coaching. We understand this in our life. Conversion by the Holy Spirit is a miraculous thing because it actually makes us love that God tells us what to do. But it's clear from Peter's life, it's clear from Paul's life, that it still takes quite a bit of effort. It still takes quite a bit of striving. It takes quite a bit of formation. We work out our salvation with God in fear and trembling because he's the one that's working in us. You see, our character is made up of habitual choices, as one author put it. And virtue is what happens when those habitual choices have been wise and directed at the kingdom of God. Whatever you aim your life at and start working towards, that will shape you into a certain type of person. What you do habitually, it's not just things that you do. Those things do things to you. One example. My phone. How many of you, if you think you're going to have to wait in line for any longer than three seconds, reach for your phone and pull it out. And you think, like me, oh, well, this is just me being efficient, right? And that's assuming you're doing email or whatever, or reading an article or something. And okay, that's fine. But I want you to know, as I've been learning the hard way, that that act, you know, you're acting on your phone, all of technology is like this. You're acting, right? You think you're in control, right? You're choosing to do this. But it's actually doing something to you. It's actually changing you, which is why when you sit down to pray or think or concentrate or listen to your spouse or friend talk to you, after about five seconds, your brain just goes everywhere because you're habituated. And so to pursue this life, we have to be rehabituated, which takes intentionality. It's not about earning. It's already ours. But this is the grace and gift of knowing how to aim our life. 
and what to aim it at and what habits to engage with so that they shape us. So in the series, the sermon will call us to be rehabituated. So we'll gain new habits of heart, mind, and action as we practice for the kingdom. Okay. I'm going to... This is an introduction sermon. I told Aaron, these things are either an hour or 20 minutes, and it's really hard to thread the needle in between. So I probably prepared enough closer to an hour. So uh, I'm I'm rewriting the sermon right now. Um, Okay. Everything I said I think is true. And I want to add something else to that. I, I think all that's true, and I think there's something else in our culture that predisposes us to thinking that we're either born special and with a gift, or we're not. And what that also does is, if we're given the gift of life by Jesus, then things must just be automatic. We must be amazingly holy, right? Like one equals the other with no effort at all. And there's a word for this, and it goes all the way back to Nietzsche, and it's called the cult of genius. And it's all in our, in our uh, life. So I've been reading a lot of psychology lately, and one book uh, is called Grit. And I don't remember who's the author, I forget. It's a great book. Um, and she reminded me and applied this principle in a way that uh, I hadn't remembered in a long time, and I want to share it with you. So this is what the cult of genius is. The cult of genius focus on a person's genius rather than the effort they expended to get that thing done. So you can read Steve Jobs' biography, which is a good one by Isaacson, or you could read some others about famous people, and you can always know, it's the same about Christian biographies, you can always know the bent of the author and what they're trying to communicate when what do they focus more on, the genius of the person or the hard work of the person? Now, they both can be true. But the cult of genius is when they focus mainly on their genius instead of also on the hard work that they engaged in, right? And we're trained like this. Like, we grow up thinking we're good at math or we're not good at math based on how fast we get it. And we know that that is not a good indicator of how good you actually will be at math. I use math because most of us are afraid of math. So this is what Nietzsche said. He said, wherever a person can see the act of becoming... The observer grows somewhat cool to that thing. So I want to apply that for you. It's brilliant. Right? We want to believe that somehow Michael Phelps was given the gift of being inhuman in the pool. Now, no doubt about it, the, the dude has got a wingspan more than a pterodactyl. Okay? That's true. And his anatomy and design is such that he was built really well for the pool. But it wasn't just that. But isn't that what we focus on? Right? It was the, he practiced rigorously four years in a row, 365 days a year, including mental visualization, right? We see him doing that before, for two hours a day before the pool. Rigorous training. No one likes the Patriots, but Tom Brady does the same thing. Okay? That's why they win. And they're good at cheating, but mainly, <laughs> mainly because they win. I mean, they work hard. Tom Brady works hard. Okay? 
trying to cut time out, and I keep taking us longer. Now, this is what Nietzsche says. This is why. So why do we do that? Why don't we want to sit there and watch Michael Phelps get better? Why don't we want to sit there and watch the mundane reality of Michael Phelps going from amateur to expert? Why don't we want to do that? And this is, Nietzsche says this about, he says, we prefer our excellence fully formed. We prefer mystery to the mundane. Now, why? What's the reason for fooling ourselves into thinking Phelps did not gain his mastery through tremendous and focused effort? Why? And this is why I think. Nietzsche again. It's our vanity. Or our self-love promotes the cult of genius. For if we think of genius as something magical, we're not obliged to compare ourselves and to find ourselves lacking. So in other words, to mythologize the natural talent of Michael Phelps lets us all off the hook. It lets us all relax into the status quo And the power actually lies in people whose thinking and life is active in one direction. That's how holiness happens. Is our thinking and our life and our our habits are aimed and focused in one direction. And we have to hold these things in tension. It's the miracle, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that breathed new life into us, took out our heart of stone, gave us a heart of flesh, God will complete the work that's in you. And now that you're free, walk with Jesus. Aim your heart, aim your habits, aim your life at the kingdom of God. Be rehabituated by this reality. And we will become holier. We will become healthier. It's not magic not magic and maybe i might say instead of nietzsche i might say i like the word mystery i'm fine with that i think he's on to something so i would replace it with we prefer our excellence fully formed we prefer magic to the mundane like we can just say a few words or think our way into holiness so i like mystery it's mysterious how this works out but it's not magic And it's not purely natural. And that is amazing. So lastly here, um, more quickly, why are we doing this now? Like at New City, why are we doing this sermon series now? Well, like I said, I've been planning this. Think about what we've done leading up to now. Remember we did Welcome to the Story last year? We did that sermon series? That was about telling us we've been invited into a story. Because a story actually gives you a part to play and it shapes you, and it forms you, and it it directs you in a certain way. You know when you're acting out of character, and you know when you're becoming more like the character of the follower of Christ. So that was the baseline. And then we went to the Ten Commandments, because I wanted us to see over weeks that the law of God is meant to form us, not just to beat us down. It's meant to direct us, yes, to Christ, but then also to send us back in how to live in response to his mercy in our life. So that's why we did the Ten Commandments. Then remember we did Psalm 1? That was also intentional. And the reason is, is because Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount have a ton of overlap. And as one commentator puts it, the Sermon on the Mount is really a Jesus expansion of Psalm 1. Because both are wisdom teaching towards flourishing. Think about it. Both invite the hearers to the path of wisdom 
And they use fruit-bearing trees as key metaphors. And they both speak of final judgment and separation of the righteous from the wicked. And they both contrast those whom the Lord knows and those whom do not know him. And they both emphasize hearing and obeying God's revelation. So we did Psalm 1 because I wanted us, remember what I said? I want us to become healthy this year. I want us to become whole. And now we're in the Sermon on the Mount because I know that our vision is to flourish so that we then can live out of an overflow in our communities to see our communities flourish. But we have to understand how to flourish. And that is what I want to begin to happen in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to see that flourishing only happens through Jesus. And holiness only happens through Christ-centered pursuit of kingdom virtue. And that only happens as we do it together in community. You cannot do this on your own. That's why we read the Bible together. That's why we gather together. That's why we pray together and for one another. And the Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit is working. And day after day, we wake up and we ask God to aim our heart again at the kingdom. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> I don't know exactly how all this works, but I do know that it, we experience it as mundane a lot of times. And, and because we bought into this idea of cult of genius, we look at people who we think are mature and holy, and we say, ah, that's because they you know, went to seminary or they grew up in a Christian household or whatever. And those things, they matter. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to say they don't. But it's not magic. It doesn't just work that way. Please teach us and train us every day by your word, through your spirit, that you want to change us and transform us, and you've given us the means, and you've given us agency to act and respond. So I pray for all of us who even now may feel a bit confused or may feel shame or guilt that you would free us from that and that you would call us to yourself over these weeks and that we would grow together. In Jesus' name, amen.